It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. Welcome. You are not Brian, but we have a special guest this week. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Sky. And I, I do believe I will do a much better job than Brian. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, uh, but thank you very much for having me. And thank you, Brian, for choosing me uh, to attempt to fill his shoes. Well, I chose you. <laughs> so Dylan Real is my guest host this week. Dylan, tell me about your position at the General Assembly first. Yeah, so I am the, the House uh, Rules Committee Counsel uh, to Chairman Destin Hall. I also have the, the honor of covering redistricting and elections for the Speaker's office. Okay, so multi. I didn't know that technically you had both roles. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, I, I basically got to, to fill in uh, Neil Inman's role. Neil is now the Chief of Staff, who, who before was the, the Rules Committee Counsel, and he, he covered uh, redistricting a little bit. So, Campbell Law. Some call it the Campbell Mafia. Uh, I'm oh. a proud member of the Campbell Mafia. Okay. So this week started out with a bang. Governor Cooper vetoed two separate bills. So the first bill, I think everyone expected him to veto. They'd put out some statements. That is the pistol purchase permit repeal bill. And the second bill was about hotel safety issues. Yeah, and I think everybody knew what was coming with the the gun bill, you know, Democrats and Republicans. uh, That's one issue that we will continue to to probably not see eye to eye on. So everybody anticipated that veto coming. But the the hotel issue is one that I'm not sure uh, too many people understand what's going on with that. Yeah. So before we started recording, I said to Dylan, do we even need to cover this? I don't I don't know if people are interested in it and I'm not sure why he vetoed it. Do you know why he vetoed it? I think if I if I knew I'd be making a lot more money than what I make, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, it, it is interesting. What the bill is trying to combat is is basically squatters and and drug dealers, uh, uh, prostitution, different issues that are going on inside of these hotels. And the uh, Charlotte is where the big issue is. So if you're a hotel owner in Charlotte, and you're trying to get the cops to come get rid of these people who are breaking laws. Uh, they, they don't have the ability to do that right now. So this bill was combating that. It was ran by Representative Bradford on the House side, uh, who's from Mecklenburg, knows the issue, and the governor vetoed it. It had uh, uh, Democrat support in both chambers. So I'm, I'm not really sure what's going on there. So will we see a veto override on that? That's an excellent question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, some other really big issues were addressed this week at the General Assembly. Let's start with the Emergency Powers Accountability Act. So that was over on the Senate side this week. What does that bill do? So the Emergency uh, Powers Accountability Act, which which is actually my boss, Chairman Destin Hall's bill, uh, what that bill does is try to rein in the executive, which which many folks feel uh, the, the executive branch, Governor Cooper, extended his powers during the pandemic and issuing the executive orders became a little bit more powerful than maybe our Constitution planned for an executive to be. So what, what that bill does is rein in the power of the executive. The Speaker's Riding Bill, that's House Bill 805, came back over to the House, and there was a hefty debate on that, of course, for the fourth or fifth time, and it is now on its way to the governor after a concurrence. Can you talk about what 
What is a concurrence vote? Yeah, so what a concurrence vote is, is is when one chamber takes up another chamber's bill, usually what you see is there's an amendment or a PCS to the bill. So in some way, the, the opposite chamber has changed the bill, so then it comes back over to the chamber where the bill originated in, and then the, the chamber where the bill originated in, they can either vote the bill down or up with a, a concurrence vote, and then uh, if you do vote it up, it then gets sent to the governor, and that's what happened with the riding bill. And what happens if you vote it down? If you vote it down, then you, you appoint conferees and you go to conference. Uh, you, and the number of conferees varies. I think the budget has uh, about 25 conferees between the House and Senate. A normal bill, usually around 10 or so, with, with those being half Senate, half House. And when there are conferees appointed to a conference committee, what is the point of the conferees? So the conferees go into the conference committee to then come to an agreement on a, a final bill and then they have to sign the jacket and they have to physically sign it. Uh, and, and that is uh, indicative of that there's an agreement on the bill to move forward with an agreed upon proposal that the two sides have to ultimately come to an agreement on. So what's interesting about that, especially with the budget, is that let's say the Democrats that voted for the budget in each chamber, they were appointed to the conference committee. Those Democrats have to sign off on the conference report for the budget. So you know that you will have to have this sort of bipartisan support as you move forward. One Democrat who is appointed to the conference committee for the budget is Representative Brian Farkas. And we sat down with him last week, Brian and I did, to do an interview. He's our first freshman on the podcast, but he's kicking off a couple of freshmen. And we will hear that now. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Representative Brian Farkas, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Let's just start off talking about your district. Tell us about where it is, what makes it special, why do you love your district? Great. Well, my district is the the ninth district. Uh, it's out of Pitt County, exclusively in the county. Um, I grew up right in the middle of it, so it's really uh, an honor to be able to, to serve my hometown in this capacity. Uh, the district's got about half of Greenville in it. I, I split Greenville with Representative Candy Smith. I've got some great small towns in there, Grimesland, uh, small village of Simpson, uh, places with a lot of potential that I really feel uh, need some leadership and uh, you know a champion. So again, to, to be the hometown guy is a is a real honor and, and a real treat uh, here in, the, in Raleigh. But yeah, it's a it's a good mix of, of rural and, and suburban and, and some of our downtown core. Um, it's got East Carolina University sitting in it. Pitt Community College is right down the road. Um, Pitt County is a lot of people call it the, the gateway to the east. And um, that's very true. I mean, it's uh, without Greenville, you would really lose a huge economic driver for the entire region. I mean, heck, when you even saw the census numbers recently, we're the only area that actually gained population. Mm. So uh, to be there, uh, to be serving that area on, on a, and trying to fight on a number of different issues is, has been a lot of fun. And yeah, in my first term. So it's, uh, yeah, learning quick and, and hitting the ground running, hopefully. Yeah, our first freshman yeah. on the podcast. I'm honored. I'm honored. <laughs> <laughs> How is that going? Being a freshman, you sign up, you 
put your name on the line. You say you're going to be a candidate. You have to raise money, go door to door. And here you are serving. We're in the long session. So this is your first session. How's it been going? I've, I've really enjoyed the work. A lot of people have asked me that question. And, and I, do, I do love what I do. Um, I kind of felt maybe with some of my background, uh, working in government, um, managing some, helping manage some nonprofits on their, serving on their boards, um, and even working in the private sector a little bit. And, and some of my background academically, I, I felt like I knew, uh, I had a decent understanding of the process, what to expect, um, particularly being a, a member of the minority heading into this session. Um, I found that I've spent more time, or less time work about the about the, the the process and more time learning about the personalities and, mm-hmm. and learning more about the individuals in the area what committees they're on what what motivates them and, and drives them and where issues that I can approach somebody on and where do I just need to leave it alone so that's uh, that that's where I've spent most of my time and I feel like I'm starting to to hit that happy that good equilibrium spot where I'm I'm learning a little bit more and, and now can really flesh out those relationships yeah. uh, more than I need, more, more, as much as I can for, for the issues I'm passionate about. So speaking of your background, you say you grew up in the area. Tell us where you went to school and what do you do for a living? I imagine yeah. uh, the 13,900 is not paying <laughs> all the bills. Well, yeah, well, so like I said, grew up in Greenville, went to all the public schools in the area. Rose High School was the, one, was the high school out in Greenville I graduated from. I did leave for a little while. I went to UNC Charlotte for, for undergrad, did poli-sci, uh, did, some econo- did an economics minor. Um, and I, I really appreciated living in Charlotte for a while. It was just a different different perspective mm-hmm. compared to somewhere out in Greenville. And as a matter of fact, I, I met probably one of my closest friends here in the legislature, uh, Representative Terry Brown, represents yeah. Mecklenburg. Uh, when we were at Charlotte, we did uh, North Carolina Student Legislature together. We, uh, we, we were just good buddies. And so to be able to come in on the same class has been mm-hmm. uh, kind of extra special for both of us. And A uh, couple of nerds. Yeah. <laughs> couple of nerds, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but uh, so so did that. Um, I spent a few years uh, immediately after that working for the United States Attorney in the Charlotte office. Uh, they represent basically the, the federal's voice, the federal voice on in the western part of the state. Mm-hmm. Um, did that for a few years. Thought perhaps I was on the law school track. Uh, got to know some of those attorneys, and I love them. But I realized that I didn't think the law school side was for me. <laughs> so mm-hmm. sorry, Scott. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I realized I was very drawn to the operational side of public service. Okay. And so actually, the U.S. attorney at the time, Ann Tompkins, uh, she had been appointed by President Obama. She had her law degree from Carolina, but she also had her master's of public administration. And, and we had some good, candid conversations. And she kind of pointed me that maybe the School of Government at Carolina would be where I'd, I'd maybe get draw the most value and, and be the most rewarding. And I went there and just fell in love with that institution. I mm-hmm. mean, it's a true nonpartisan resource. The great for, resource. Yeah, for, for local governments, state governments. Um, and I mean, I had some incredible classes. Heck, one of, uh, I guess, one of the legends of the General Assembly, Norma Houston, mm-hmm. she taught my state government class. Wow. Uh, so, I mean, to go there and, I mean, before he passed away, uh, Governor Holzhauser was a special guest. And again, they never ever wavered from that just mission of service they don't care about your politics they just want to help you and give you the tools you need to be successful whether you're a legislature in a small town Um, so I I did that finished my MPA went back into the federal service for a little under two years worked for the National Institute Environmental Health Sciences Um, they've got a they're located in the, the same large RTP campus as the EPA and I came into their operations division and helped them formulate a lot of emergency management documents. So that kind of became a specialization for me. So continuity of operations plan, I helped draft the very first uh, 
governing document on that. And for those who don't know, continuity of operations is just protecting the essential functions of what runs an organization from some catastrophic stuff or even just something really small. It's just the missions to make sure that the government continues, right? Mm -hmm. And the mission mm -hmm. continues. So did that, worked up, helped them refine first response plans. And then in about 2012, 20, probably 2013, um, I started feeling the, the pull back to the east. Um, my dad works, he's an architect, and uh, he was kind of looking to to add somebody to the firm um, with some background in, in you know, marketing, and, and we do a decent amount of public work there with that architecture firm, so someone who could speak that language, mm -hmm. and um, it just it was a good alignment. And so I knew down the road if I ever wanted to continue additional public service opportunities, I'd, I do really feel drawn to giving back to the place that, that invested in me mm -hmm. when I was really young and um, through the schools and community programs. So went east. And uh, started work with him. It's a JKF Architecture. Those are his initials. Okay. He is the boss. Right. <laughs> and, okay. uh, yeah, so we're just a small five, six-person firm at any one time. And uh, we do a lot of just commercial public work design. Everything east of 95 is kind of our territory. And it's nice to be able to keep him in the studio doing what he loves. And I'm out there pounding the pavement and trying to find the work to keep everybody busy. And I will tell you, I think having that private sector experience in addition to the public sector really helped me. Uh, when I came to the legislature, because I can, these are just different voices and, mm -hmm. and different objectives, and to be able to have a little bit of both mm -hmm. has really helped me kind of as, as I try to look for compromise, mm -hmm. uh, which is really important to me. Speaking of pounding the pavement, so you flipped a seat and your seat is very competitive. Right. We have heard that it is because you were out in the community and you're a door knocker and building those relationships. And I think you also mentioned that you're on some boards and we had looked at that. You were on quite a few different boards and involved in your community. Can you kind of talk about just your community, building those relationships in your district? Yeah, and absolutely. I'm excited to talk about it because, you know, for me, when I, when I started the move, East, I did, I did have a few voices that had asked me to consider going ahead and starting to run for the legislature pretty quickly. Okay. Um, and I, I kind of hedged on that. I, I didn't want to do that. I felt mm -hmm. like when I got back to Greenville, I'd been gone for a, a number of years. And I, you know, I'm, I'm someone who's really, really probably oversensitive to making sure that, you know, I'm genuine and authentic in everything I do. And I felt that I needed to take some time to reacclimate with the hometown to see what issues were important to them. And so I figured other ways of doing that service were to just immerse myself in the different boards and commissions, trying to line stuff that I'm a passion, passionate about and maybe take some of those good ideas that I learned when I was in Charlotte or in the Triangle and, and try to bring them to the East. So I um, was on the Public Transportation and Parking Commission, which really just dealt with you know public transportation and parking and, <laughs> and, and mobility. And we were able to really... Uh, put together, you know, redo bus routes that helped more working people get to where they needed to. Um, I was the two-term president of the Greenville Museum of Art, which I'm really passionate about the arts. Don't ask me to paint, draw, anything. <laughs> I, have, I have none of that talent, but uh, but I do really believe in it as a as a term we talk about creative placemaking and, and really enticing people to want to call a community home. You need to have those things. And the Greenville Museum of Art's rich, 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 rich in history. Um, but it was really going through some some tough times. And so I, I was able to take it from finishing thousands and thousands of dollars in the red in my year, use that MPA background, mm -hmm. um, working with people, and and we got it back in the black, and we've got good staff in there, and we, we, we righted the ship. So that was 
that's the kind of stuff I wanted to bring. It was very important for me, for my community to see me at work well before I ever asked anybody to vote for me. Because mm -hmm. I think we've got enough of that. Particularly out east, you got a lot of candidates who show up, particularly only around election time. Mm -hmm. And that, growing up, that drove me nuts. I couldn't stand it. And at the same time, I grew up in an area where I knew what good leadership could look like. Mm -hmm. um, Pitt County for a long time was represented by Marion McLawhorn in the house, and she yeah. was a mentor for me. I, I love the work that she did, um, very reasonable, and you know she would vote what was best for the area. Mm -hmm. And she was a Democrat, but on the Republican side, I was always really impressed with Congressman Jones, who yeah. was just, you know, raised the bar, he and his father, mm -hmm. for what constituent services is supposed to be. And so we, we've started that, you know, in my office, and Katie's been fantastic, my legislative assistant. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, that's the baseline, and we're trying to build on it. So um, being able to be authentic to ourselves before I ever ran, let the community let the community kind of see what I can do in a lower pressure situation, I think really helped. Um, and those boards had Democrats on it. It had Republicans on it. And I was really proud of the crossover that yeah. we had. Um, strong, independent performance. Um, it didn't take it for granted, though, like you said, Sky. We, we worked it and mm -hmm. knocked as many doors as we could um, and, you know, had to navigate the extra dynamic of COVID. Right. But, um, yeah, it was, it was it was very rewarding to, to see us get through on election night. I was it was really exciting for me and my whole family. It was, yeah. really, it was really great. If I remember correctly, it was one of the first races called. I think yeah. when we were watching results come in, we saw Brian Farkas come in as a win. So mm -hmm. sounded like you were a little ambivalent when maybe you were recruited to to serve. Uh, so you decide to run and you challenge an incumbent. Mm -hmm. I think he had been appointed right uh, after Greg Murphy went to Congress. Well-funded, yeah. <laughs> uh, well-funded. Uh, also, I believe someone that was looked up to in the community is a doc is a doctor there. What made you decide to to take on this incumbent? Right. Well, it was less about uh, Representative Jones at the time. Mm -hmm. Perrin Jones. Perrin no, Jones. No, not Walter Jones. <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that one. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, he. Uh, I, you know, he the appointment all kind of happened very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, by the time he got the appointment, we were starting to take a look at what was going on because you know the the, the death of congressman walter jones kind of shook up everything out yeah. there um with with representative murphy moving on and of course the court order on the redistricting in the area pitt county had been gerrymandered and mm -hmm. and so i mean i ran in 2016 and came up a little right. bit short and that district was basically proven to be gerrymandered so knowing that we had this 50 50 shot in a district uh, and, and i've never asked for any more than that like i am i am perfectly fine and frankly probably a little more comfortable to run in a moderate district because i think it reflects me in the pitt county community mm -hmm. um so again it was it was less about you know rep perrin jones and, and more about who i thought could bring the best leadership for people and who had the proven record of doing that and i thought that was that was a pretty pretty stark contrast mm -hmm. um and i think people i think people saw that too yeah. yeah, let's talk about you being a moderate. So something that has been really interesting is that while you ran in this tough district, based on that, you come into the legislature as maybe someone that Republicans don't look on fondly. Mm -hmm. However, it is definitely the talk of the legislature that people like you. Oh, good. And that you have been very reasonable. As you said, you are a reasonable, moderate person. How has it been working across the aisle, making these relationships with Republicans for you? Mm -hmm. Well, I think what was really, you know, I had a primary coming into this election too, and uh, we were really 
you know, we, we didn't change who we were from the primary to the general. You know, we mm-hmm. kind of presented who we, what kind of candidate, what kind of governing official we were going to be when we got to the House. Um, and when I got when I got here, I think again, like the the background with the School of Government and and that training really helped equip me to kind of be able to compartmentalize the political side and let's shift over to governing and, and maybe leave some of the extra politics at the at the door where we can. I, I think that's that's been helpful. But I also, you know, I grew up in a, a family of every single person in my family minus me is an unaffiliated voter. And okay. they have voted in the Republican primary. They have voted in the Democratic primary. And that was just, you know, I was raised that from that, the only way to get progress was to 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 listen to one another and above all, be kind and be respectful. Like that is that is it. You did you got out of line of that growing up. That wasn't that wasn't good, and that was paramount. And so, you know, to me, it, it's not like I've, I'm introducing some new formula for trying to get stuff done. I'm I'm just trying to lean in on you know the values I was raised with, and treat everyone with respect because you know everyone comes here obviously from different perspectives and different districts, but there's something that motivates them and something they're passionate about and. If we can find the common ground, even just the common threads that might bind us, I think we can build on that. And uh, yeah, I, I just, uh, and I, I gotta give, again, Katie, my LA, uh, a lot of credit too. Um, she has you know, really leaned in on what we're, we're trying to do in terms of respect and kindness in our office. We, we like to view ourselves as a place that anyone can stop by and, and hang out and talk and vent or whatever. you know. And um, I, I think that really, that really does help. And um, yeah, I'm, that just kind of, you know, again, there's nothing too groundbreaking about it other than just, just, treat, just treat folks the way you want to be treated and, mm-hmm. and keep an open mind and, yeah, just be nice. <laughs> it's not groundbreaking, but it, it is something that, you know, you don't see every day, no. uh, especially in these toxic times. Let's talk a little bit about your youth. If, yeah. Uh, the General Assembly skews uh older you are a a young legislator i have in my time working at the general assembly when i talk to young legislators they say you know the problem isn't republican democrat majority minority we need younger people Mm -hmm. in here can you talk a little bit about this and your perspective right right so i mean i definitely would love to see um maybe the average age of our legislature come down a little bit i i think i'm bringing some unique expertise that maybe some of our older generations uh, and I'm with all due respect like they haven't had to deal with some of the issues that we have to student debt is a whole different dynamic than what what some of our older legislators had to deal with and so I've kind of put a little extra pressure on myself I mean not only being a young candidate but being someone with a major university in the district mm-hmm. um, that you know I'm gonna try to speak to those issues where I can in those perspectives I think I'm very fortunate uh, really blessed that you know I'm, I'm in a position in the private sector where um, I've got some flexibility to do this service. I mean, let me be very clear. Uh, Papa Farkas gets his hours in at work, you know, for me. It just requires a, it just requires a little bit more of an unconventional schedule at times, right? right? But, uh, but you know, that, that flexibility has been very helpful to allow me to be here, be present, and, again, probably be a voice for, for a lot more people that I wish were in the room with me. So um, there's conversations to be had about what we can do to attract more people. I mean, I know some folks have advocated about professionalization of the legislature and 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 making it some sort of a full-time job so that people from all different walks of life um, can you know count on it for just 
stability and then really keep their mind and their energy here for their people. Um, I think it warrants a conversation about what that would look like. Um, and that would be a, definitely a, a big fix to try to diversify. But uh, I, I love being the, the younger guy. I just turned 34. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I'm really, I like being in there. And I, I find that and maybe this is also just, again, coming from that upbringing of treat everyone with respect and particularly your elders. Like I, I find that I get along really well with a lot of our, our older members too. And yeah, that's been great. All right. The question maybe you've yeah. been waiting for. Our politics are incredibly polarized. I'm I'm sure that you know that from the race that you ran and generally how things are right now. If you had a magic wand to fix one thing in our politics today, what would it be? So I went back and I thought about that because there's even just since I've been here, you know, I've, I've thought like this could work or this, this would be different because now I'm, I'm kind of I'm in it and mm -hmm. I'm seeing it. But I really kind of went back and thought about what are the issues that motivated me even back in college when I was you know, nerding out in the library and reading about public policy and, and what, what could fix, what are the big fixes? And, you know, obviously I know folks have already talked about nonpartisan, uh, you know, independent redistricting, which would be important. But to me, we've, we've got to have a real conversation about role. the money is playing in our politics. It has, it has changed. It has warped um, so much about, you know, how people do business. And we've got policymakers who are and the fundraising business way too much uh, and they should be exclusively in the policy making business so I mean I know it's not you know the biggest sexiest item that people want to talk about and I, I can see eyes glaze over sometimes but we've got to talk about comprehensive campaign finance reform in a way that you know allows people to to stay in the present and do their job and not immediately feel like they've got to get out of the legislatures and go lock themselves in a room and, and beg donors for money and um, that that's always to me been our biggest vulnerability at the national level and I've seen it we see it trickle down now to our, our state level in unprecedented mm -hmm. ways over the last decade so if we could if someone would be willing to get in the weeds on that mm -hmm. I mean I, I don't necessarily know what that system looks like I've got mm -hmm. some thoughts but uh, again willing to work with anyone who wants to uh, to get moving on that um, I know we I, I was one of the primary sponsors on the fix our democracy act this, this session with uh, Rep Clemens and Smith and um, I believe Rep Dahl, but don't mm -hmm. hold me to that. But, uh, you know, because I, I felt like it was important, even though I know that legislation was unlikely to go anywhere, that we try to keep some of those those issues to the forefront. But, yeah, money in politics is, is a major issue, and I'd, I'd love to be able to create a system that entices more people to want to run and not not be so intimidated by that whole yeah. monster that whole monster before yeah. you get in yeah. let us know when you fix that whole <laughs> yeah, thing yeah. Yeah. yeah i'll follow up yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well representative brian farkas we appreciate everything you do for your district everything you do for the state you certainly know how to do politics better thank you for being on the podcast thank you for having me i appreciate it so Representative Brian Farkas represents Greenville, North Carolina, and he beat one of uh, uh, Republican incumbents. He's one of the few seats that the House Republican Party lost. And uh, Representative Farkas has came in and has quickly become everybody's uh, favorite freshman member of the minority party. Uh, I, I have nothing but good things to say about Representative Farkas. He actually asked me to go for a bourbon drink with him last mm -hmm. night. Uh, uh, Representative Farkas is a very nice guy, bright individual. Uh, I think he's going to have a, a long political future. He is such a pleasure to talk to. Just a nice guy all around. And we really enjoyed talking to him and listening to his insight on being a freshman at the General Assembly, being a freshman Democrat at the General Assembly. It was really interesting. 
And Sky, I think I would even go so far to say is that uh, Representative Brian Farkas does politics better. Ooh. (laughs) Jumping back into another controversial topic, maybe one of the most controversial bills that we have heard this session, critical race theory. That was debated on the House floor today. Do you want to talk about critical race theory? I'd be happy to. And and for for those listeners at home, it's important to uh, uh, start this off by saying this week we voted on uh, emergency powers bill, which is reining in the governor's authority. We have voted on a uh, rioting bill. We have voted on a gun bill. We are one social issue short of voting on literally (laughs) every social issue imaginable. So in a week where we didn't cover very many bills, a lot of concurrence votes, uh, and, and not moving too much substance, uh, we, we really covered a broad range of social issues. So to, to see that where we are in the budget negotiations is kind of interesting. But uh, what, what, what critical race theory is, is uh, you know, the idea that you shouldn't be teaching kids in school that, uh, you know, one race is, is inferior or, or um, you know, that one gender, one religion. I think there, there's uh, every uh, protected class is included in on that uh, this is an issue that our lieutenant governor has been very strong on. Uh, lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson here in North Carolina has been uh, a vocal advocate of this bill. Got strong support by Republicans in both chambers. Uh, no support, I don't believe, by any Democrat in either chamber. So uh, another one of these divisive issues. Yeah. And this bill just moved through the Senate last week, moved through the House this week. So a very quickly taken up bill that will head to the governor's desk also pretty quickly. Right. And another bill with an immense amount of debate. Uh, You saw a lot of of members of minority party in both chambers really speaking out against this bill. What is going on with the budget? So, Scott, that is a million dollar question. And then the number one question I get asked is what's going on with the budget and when are we going to be done with the budget? And, and something that is very much worth noting, between uh, the Senate side, between Senator Berger and his folks who are the senior appropriations chairman, and Speaker Tim Moore and our senior appropriators, you have some very successful individuals in different fields across the board. You have very smart, very capable individuals who have spent weeks uh, negotiating back and forth on this bill. Both sides have spent months working on their versions of the budget. So in in my opinion, while folks are are getting anxious and want to see the budget, I think you're going to see a product in the end that reflects the the amount of brain power that is truly working on it, both sides of the aisle. I have heard a rumor that the House is standing maybe a little more firm than they have in the past. True or false? I will say that the House always stands very firm, (laughs) and we are led by a a great leader and speaker, Tim Moore, our three appropriations chairmen, uh, between uh, uh, Chairman Arp, Chairman Lambeth, and Chairman uh, Sane. We we have some very strong individuals leading the charge on the House side on the budget negotiations. Spoken like someone who's paid for by those people. (laughs) Indeed I am. (laughs) Okay, so I have a question. So with redistricting, will we be done with session redistricting everything before or after you have a child (laughs) i think that my wife would love for us to be done before uh i I think that uh uh, we'll we'll see what ends up happening with with uh policy negotiations budget negotiations and and you know drawing maps so far on the show y'all have had representative zach hawkins and representative allison Dahl both on the show Mm -hmm. and uh of course i think those are two individuals who certainly do politics better and i enjoy working with both of them in the house uh, and, and both of them mentioned this story about going into the 2020 election cycle in the midst of a pandemic 
Um, they had to come together with a group of, of members, including both Republicans and Democrats, uh, in both chambers, and it, it, we had to essentially decide how, how we would go, go about conducting the election in the middle of the pandemic and to, to see folks come together in a time that was tough. You know, we were right in the middle of, of a global pandemic. No one really knew what was going to happen, but the election was on everyone's mind. So to see members of both parties and Representative Dahl, Representative Hawkins in particular, as freshman members of the minority party to have a very strong impact on what we ended up ultimately doing with with the Bipartisan Elections Act of 2020. And that to me was a, a clear sign of folks doing politics better. And, and those two are, are two who do better than most. I think that Representative Dahl said that was her greatest accomplishment and that she just really enjoyed that process working with your office. And we ended up with a, a great final outcome. Unfortunately, you know, what, what the Board of Elections ended up doing with, with that bill didn't reflect what, what the bipartisan agreement was. But in, in that moment, with working with both chambers in the, in the midst of uh, a pandemic that no one expected, and there was no right or wrong answer. We just knew that there was a problem that needed to be addressed, and folks put aside partisan politics and worked together uh, for, for better policy. Wow, what a happy story. What a happy family over <laughs> in the house. <laughs> you are headed to Illinois this weekend? I am, yes. We're headed for uh, 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 my wife and I's first child. We are headed to uh, uh, our first baby shower. So I am headed to Illinois. Back to our country, Sky. Yes, Dylan and I are both from Illinois, and we both grew up in Southern Illinois-ish. More Southwest, yep. Okay, and I'm more Southeast Illinois, in case y'all don't know your Illinois (laughs) geography. (laughs) But we're both from Illinois, and Dylan and his wife are expecting, so congratulations. Thank you very much, Sky. Everyone tell Dylan congratulations, and Katie, both of them, congrats. And we're very excited for you. Well, Dylan, thank you so much for joining me, for making the time. I know that you're on a tight timeline today, so I appreciate it. I appreciate you bringing our child, Carl, with you. Thank you very much for having me. (laughs) All right. We would really appreciate it if you would take the time to rate us on whatever podcast app you're listening to this on like review share with your friends we really appreciate it if you share the podcast with others and we hope that you have a great labor day long weekend whatever you're doing enjoy it we will see you next week for the start of football season and whatever you're talking to your friends about this weekend for labor day weekend while you're having a beer just remember to do politics better. Carl, if you're going to keep doing that, you have to use a coaster. No, Brian will edit this. I'm not going to beat you up. I'm not trying to mess you up. Okay.